Great. Well, I'm here with uh, Barry O'Dwyer, the Chief Executive uh, of Royal London. Um, first of all, Barry, uh, just tell me, where, where, which room of your house are you speaking to me from? Uh, I mean, you're wearing, it looks like you're wearing a suit to work, but, uh, and when, when, but when, I'm intrigued, when did you wake up and how, many, how are you getting your 30 minutes exercise every day? Uh, well, I woke up, actually, I woke up a little bit late at 7.30 um, yeah. because of no commute. Uh, but, um, I, and I haven't, I must admit, been doing my exercise every day, but I am, uh, I am actually in Perthshire in Scotland just now. So there are some nice walks around here. So um, every second day I managed to get a, a nice walk. Fantastic. Uh, so let, let's do it. Let's start this interview talking about the crisis, uh, of course. Um, just wanted to ask, what's it been? What's it been like uh, to be in charge uh, in the, you know, in, as a new CEO uh, and being hit with the, as an economic crisis, a very bizarre economic crisis uh, within within just a year? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it is a horrible disease, and uh, and it's impacting millions of people worldwide. So, um, in that context, I think we're all thankful for having our health. Uh, so. It's, it's very difficult to feel sorry for myself in the context of being a new CEO with all of that going on around me. But um, having said that, I was six months in by the time this struck and I spent the first three months or so uh, learning everything I possibly could about how Royal London goes about its business. Um, and so I felt relatively well placed when the, the crisis hit to start working from home and, and leading the business from home. It's not what I would have chosen, but um, I have been able to rely on about 4,000 people to continue to do their jobs and they've done it magnificently. Well, yes, you mentioned that. So I know that Royal London uh, had had moved at 98% of its 4,000 person uh, workforce from home without, within days of the government uh, lockdown being announced. Um, in fact, I we spoke to your operations director, John Glenn, who said the, uh, the business took a, quote, firm decision on the 17th of March, which meant that by 23rd March, uh, I think uh, the day uh, lockdown was actually announced, uh, that only 10% of the workforce was on site. Uh, and by 26th of March, that dropped to 2%. Great. Yeah. So what, just talk me through what had happened prior to the 17th of March that meant you were able to take that firm decision there and then. Well, it's a very interesting question, actually, because, you, you know, not obviously, if you weren't well equipped to take these decisions and make this happen in mid-March, then you couldn't possibly do it in a week. Um, the logistical stuff that you talked about, we did make happen in, in a week, but um, obviously that was on the back of a considerable amount of uh, investment over many years in what's currently called operational resilience. We used to call it business continuity, but it, it's relatively boring stuff, but it's uh, investment in core infrastructure that means that when this sort of thing happens, then we can um, move everybody to working from home. The systems can cope with that and we can remain open business as usual for our customers. And I suppose that's the, the real win out of this from Royal London. Yes, we got everybody uh, working from home, we shipped thousands of laptops all around the UK to ensure that people could uh, work from home quickly. Um, but the, the key win, if you like, is that we've remained open business as usual for critical and non-critical services. And some of our customer metrics have never been better. So, uh, and okay, because we're several weeks now into lockdown. Um, I mean, tell me then what the specific measures Royal London has taken to cope 
uh, with COVID? You know, have any staff been furloughed, for instance, or have you hired more staff to cope with, as you say, the calls and inquiries for, from advisors and direct customers and customers? No, we haven't furloughed anybody, and um, we are busy with uh, answering customer queries. As I said, everything is is business as usual. We're we're uh, all of our phone lines are operational, and um, the. And actually what we've ended up doing is uh, focusing a huge amount on helping advisors through the crisis because obviously it's, it's not just affected Royal London, it's affected all of our advisor partners as well and trying to figure out and um, trying to help them understand how to change their business processes to reflect the new reality that we're all dealing with has been a top priority. Obviously our account managers have to do that virtually now, that's the new way of the world, but we are running webinars, for instance, we've had record number of advisors attend our webinars. Uh, everything has been done, done remotely to help advisors to understand how do they get back in business? How do they make sure that, that they meet the needs of their clients, which will ultimately, I suppose, um, feed into demand on our services. And does that include things like uh, not you know digital sign off, digital signatures uh, on documents, and not having to send advisors post? A lot of advisors still having to come to the office because of post being sent and the reality of of of, uh, of paper. Yeah, I mean, right across our business, we've been focusing on how do we make things simpler, not just for advisors, although um, our primary source of new business is advisors. So we've been very focused on you. You're absolutely right. So the um, taking away the need for wet signatures on uh, applications that was um, very very helpful to advisors. I know in the run up to tax year end, mm -hmm. um, but also right across the business, it, we've been focusing on how do we avoid paper and how do we avoid putting strain on critical services. So in our protection business, for instance, uh, making sure that we don't. We don't add to the walls of the NHS by asking for GP reports or for, by sending people for medicals. In fact, the, the nurses that do our medicals have been redeployed to the front line. So um, right across the business, we've been doing lots and lots of work to try and figure out how do we, how do we accommodate the, the new reality. Oh, very interesting. And uh, just on note on staff, um, I mean, if, how have you been able to support staff and I suppose their mental health uh, during the period and, and how you know is there any role in you as, as the CEO communicating with them so to speak? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm sure my, my colleagues are, uh, are getting close to being sick of hearing from me um, <laughs> I, I think you know it, well more seriously I suppose you can't over communicate in, in a situation like this and so I have been uh, dialing up my communication with colleagues to we, we made a commitment to people that within four hours of a major government announcement that we would come out with a response uh, to colleagues. And that has been hugely appreciated. Now we followed up subsequently with more and more detail. Um, but I'm a firm believer in this sort of circumstance, people just want first and foremost to be told the truth and be treated like adults. And we've taken that approach. We, we um, have been very straightforward in the way that we've communicated. Uh, what's going well, what's going not so well, and what we're doing to fix things. Um, and it is appreciated by, by colleagues. I'm um, getting a lot of feedback that uh, we are more responsive and we're more communicative than uh, many other businesses. And, and uh, we've put a lot of effort into that. Excellent. Uh, and I must ask, as a business, what does this mean for the future uh, of, of some of the projects you had on? I think particularly I'm thinking of the, the planned sale of a, of a centric platform. Uh, and there are, are there any other projects that have been disrupted because of the pandemic? 
Well, we haven't seen much disruption, um, partly as a result of the fact that um, we're mutual and so we take a long-term view uh, of, the, of this sort of thing. Clearly, it's a big crisis, but from our perspective, uh, we're in a business you know, dealing with customers over a 20, 30-year period. So um, uh, we have taken the long-term view. Um, everything is is pretty much continuing as normal. We've got some, obviously, some replanning uh, based on trying to think about how um, shortages, if, if people do fall ill, might impact some of our projects. On, on Eccentric, uh, which you, you mentioned specifically, uh, first of all, we've never confirmed nor denied that this is a sale process uh, as per normal. Um, okay. and, we, and, and the reality is that I'm continuing to, to review the options that we've got for the Eccentric business, but in, in uh, in reality, it's doing well. The the um, uh, obviously the like all platform businesses, it's been hit by um, changes in assets and uh, the market volatility that we've seen. But the business, on, at an operational level, continues to perform very well. Excellent. Well, I wanted to uh, talk to you about sort of being a mutual, as as you just mm. raised there. Um, now, I'll, I'll take the starting point is of your uh, your personal message. So I was inter interested to read your personal message on the. Uh, Royal London, Royal London website to customers regarding COVID-19 um, uh, and a podcast too. I thought, I don't wonder who, whose idea was that. But um, the first thing you say uh, was that you've been taking action to protect your financial strength. So I wondered if you were able to first share any more details of what that has entailed. Well, the one of the benefits, I mean, um, uh, you won't hear many people extolling the virtues of Solvency 2, but one of the benefits of the uh, prudential regulation that we've had in the UK over the past 10 years is that I think our sector is remarkably resilient now to all sorts of stresses. And this is a major stress, but from a, the perspective of a, of a life insurance company, it's sort of business as usual in terms of the, um, the things that we have to think about and how we protect our balance sheet. Um, and a lot of the work that uh, we've been doing is a continuation of the work that went into the preparation and the implementation of Solvency 2. So we have hedging strategies in place that uh, have, um, I suppose, bluntly made us a lot of money in volatile markets. Uh, and that has meant that our capital has been very, very resilient. Um, it's uh, despite everything, all of the turmoil, uh, our, our capital position remains very robust and we remain uh, incredibly strong. I know as a, you know, a life insurer, um, you know, that, that part of the business, you know, you, you, you would have been expected to have been particularly badly hit the falling equity markets, low bond yields uh, in a recent history, a cut in interest rates. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I imagine, you know, so, so you know, presumably that, that has helped with, with that, but that would have, would have been a particularly sort of perfect storm type situation. Yeah, it, it, it does depend a little bit on the nature of your liabilities as a life insurer. We don't have a huge amount of annuity business, um, which would be particularly susceptible to falling interest rates and, and um, widening spreads. Um, but, it, it's, uh, but you're right, the combination of um, falling equity markets and uh, low yields um, has been, has been uh, a, bad set, a bad scenario, a bad set of... of um, uh, scenarios to, to model, but it's well within the range of um, the model that we use to, to withstand or the, to prove that we can withstand all sorts of market variability. Okay. 
Uh, the second thing you say in that message uh, to customers that was Royal London will still be making a profit share award. Um, you write Royal London shared 140 million pounds with uh, around 1.8 million customers in April. So could you just explain what the, uh, just explain to, you know, explain to us what the customer profit share scheme is and how it works uh, and what changes you made to react to the crisis, if any? Yeah, the easiest way to, to understand how profit share works is essentially with uh, in our pension, taking our pensions range. Um, so what we do is effectively give part of the charges that we make on our pensions back to customers uh, on an annual basis. And this year we'll give 15 basis points um, back to customers uh, through the profit share. And in the context that somebody might be paying 50, 55 basis points for a pension with Royal London, um, a return of 15 basis points is a, a very substantial contribution. Um, and, and I suppose it, it comes back to the fact that we have no shareholders to pay. So from our perspective, we're running the business for our customers first and foremost. Uh, that's the main benefit of mutuality, I think. This is actually, from my perspective, some additional benefits on top and some financial tangible benefits that customers get from um, investing with a mutual. Just hear something in the background, Barry, and there's no problem at all, but are they birds? Yeah, um, <laughs> we're, we're blessed with oyster catchers here, which uh, they look very pretty, but they're incredibly noisy. <laughs> they're outside. They're not yeah, outside. they are outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that, you, you mentioned shareholders, or the absence of shareholders. I mean, interesting, I mean, what you know, you've experienced with, with PLCs, what's the absence of shareholders uh, mean for your response to, to a crisis like this? Um, it's quite an interesting one, Will, the, the, and it's quite hard to describe until you've worked in both environments. And I started with a mutual, worked for a few PLCs, and now I'm back working for a mutual again. Um, and there is a very tangible difference. The, the, uh, I, I suppose the easiest way to um, describe it is that mutuals, like I said, first and foremost, are focused on their customers. They don't have any inherent conflict of interest. Uh, and secondly, that a lot, and partly because of that, they take a very long-term view. So, um, you know, I talked about the fact that we've proved incredibly resilient, I think probably best in class in terms of our resilience. Part of that has been as a result of previous generations of management taking a similar long-term view and investing in some of the core infrastructure that has allowed us to um, have everybody working from home as normal within six days, as we talked about earlier. Um, but more generally, the, the, the entire focus of the organization and of the management team and on, of the board is how do we help customers? How do we help customers through this, this crisis? But then how do we make sure that we're investing appropriately now to continue to deliver for customers after the end of the crisis? And, and that's quite a different conversation than I suspect is happening at PLCs who are worried about dividends, etc. I mean, some insurers, having been urged not to pay dividends, have paid dividends to their shareholders. In your view, is that, is that the right thing for them to do? I think every, every insurer will have come to, I'm sure, a, uh, a sensible balance. Um, the, as I said at the outset, actually, some of the work that had been done on the uh, prudential supervision and the, the regulation around our sector has actually shown that, for, particularly for life and pensions, um, our balance sheets are relatively resilient. Uh, so I'm absolutely certain um, that every, every uh, board will have considered carefully their financial position and made the right call based on, on their particular circumstances. 
great. And uh, I guess just just following that that quote you made uh, on the website, uh, which I liked. Um, there's the, the the last bit you say, and in the podcast you say, um, hopefully there'll be some good to emerge from this, and it feels like we might leave a stronger sense of community and shared responsibility. Uh, I suppose I want to ask, you know, do you really think things will will be better after this crisis? I think things will be very different. I mean, it, it, it's it's really quite interesting when you see how what we're now in the fourth week of lockdown, and um, they say that it takes three weeks to create a habit. Uh, if we're in lockdown for six weeks, and I suspect actually in our sector we may be in lockdown for longer because I imagine that uh, other parts of the economy will return to normal and uh, more quickly than than our sector, and. And so we're not just, I think, all going to go back to the way things were. I think there will be a change. Um, and we'll also see probably the best year for many years in terms of uh, action on climate change because emissions will be lower than uh, I suspect last year. Um, and so I think, you know, before we all rush headlong into getting back into the way things were, I think as a society and societies across the world, I think, will reflect on how we need to change. And I do think, you know, there's, there is absolutely no doubt that the solidarity that we feel, we all feel for the NHS, the sense of community that um, pervades uh, society now, that's not going to dissipate overnight. And, and so I do think that um, when we return to something more like normal, a conversation that I'm keen to have with our customers and advisors about responsible investing, for instance, how, how should you, you be using your pension for the greater good, not just for the maximization of returns for you. I think that's, that's a conversation that more and more people will be open to. Mm. Well, I'm going to circle back around to ESG by way of a short mention of, of the funds business. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, yeah, I'm going to ask you know, how, how the funds business has been affected. Uh, by the market sell off. I mean, apart from the obvious, I mean, it's a difficult yep. time. But yep. I mean, we were taking a look at uh, so the, out, you know, the outflows, the flows data that we get every 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 month. Uh, Royal London, sort of, what I could see is indicatively, is you know, it's been several hundred million, but it's been, I think, and you could perhaps tell me, but it's comparatively favourable uh, to to some others. Um, and I just wanted, but I just wanted to just ask you just just for, for the overview of the, of how the asset management business has has fared, um, and perhaps we could also sort of mention, you know, sort of the effect of things like the gating of the uh, the property funds and things like that. Yeah, um, obviously it is a tough period for all asset managers, but I think you're right that I think um, Royal London has has performed comparatively well. Um, and, and part of that has been the sustainable range that, that uh, we spoke about and you mentioned in terms of ESG. As you probably know, we've, we've got, um, I think, the sustainable range with the longest track record and it also has uh, an exceptionally good uh, performance record. And so we actually saw net inflows in March of about 75 million into the sustainable range. Um, we, you're right though, we saw, we saw about a billion outflow um, something like 25 to 30 million on the funds 900 million in cash now the the uh, outflow from the funds albeit it was relatively small was for asset allocation reasons where uh, as a house we're um, more heavily weighted towards credit credit had a good run and people uh, took money out to invest in equities uh, because equities were so weak 
Um, and on some of the cash funds, outflows we believe were also for asset allocation reasons, but also because some clients uh, needed cash to meet margin calls. So um, lots of different reasons as you would expect, but uh, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Royal London's performance in these markets in terms of flows is probably going to be pretty good relative to the rest of the asset management industry. And, and yes, of course, you mentioned the sustainable fund. I think the sustainable leaders fund, I, th I think saw an inflow. Yeah. Uh, certainly it's been a good performer over the last few years. Um, Michael, Michael Fox's funds. Uh, and I think he, I think I was looking at his sustainable world fund happens to be ranked top of our, of our sector there. And so, yeah, it'd be good to talk more about that. And, and I'm also, you know, and just pick up the point you're making before and what lessons this crisis is teaching, um, you know, whether we will be a more of a concentration on sustainability and ESG type investment after the, after the crisis has passed. Yeah, I think, I mean, we, we're, um, we're market leaders in the sustainable range and, and uh, Michael and those funds have done incredibly well. Um, and so we would, we would expect to continue to uh, attract, um, attract flows there. The, uh, but more widely than that, the sustainable range is obviously part of responsible investing. But I think um, whether customers and advisors will uh, opt for a sustainable solution or or rather just want a more responsible solution than traditional asset management, then I, th I think there is an opportunity now to um, get some good out of this crisis and actually start having that conversation with advisors uh, and ultimately with end customers about um, how they can make a difference in the way that they choose to allocate their pension. So I, I suspect you'll see more from Royal London um, in that regard over the, over the coming months. Yes, yeah, and you mentioned the, the importance of pensions there, um, you know, which is a, it's a step change in terms of its, you know, the, the amount of money, the, the effect that would have from the orbit, you know, large, re, you know, retail funds that, that are on offer. Um, that sounds, sounds like you're, you're, you're suggesting there could be, a, you know, something deeper in terms of what you might regard as the, the mainstream or, or default way that, you as a as a pensions provider uh, invest invest those assets uh, from what's gone on before. Well, we'll we'll ultimately be guided by advisors and customers. So, and uh, the attitude of uh, of advisors is incredibly important. And um, however, what we're what we're making sure now is that uh, advisors don't get out of step with their clients, and and making sure that we are providing advisors with the information and the support that they need to be able to answer some of the questions that we think will come uh, from clients as we return to normal. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, ultimately advisors, as you know, direct a lot of the money in this market. And, um, but I, I think the attitude of advisors is also changing as well as their clients. And I just want to ask you a question about, about risk, because this has come up in a few conversations I had with, with uh, sort of experts, I suppose, outside of, of financial services who looking in at what's been going on uh, mm -hmm. in the world in general. Um, and one thing that came up uh, was this, uh, an idea about whether the industry, and I mean, I'm sort of, you know, it's the insurance industry and the asset management industry and, and sort of society at large has priced risk correctly. Uh, so, you know, basically, do we pay and have we paid enough for the, the, the real risks like pandemics, like pa climate change that we know are coming? But, you know, are we paying enough for them or, or perhaps to sort of by, by sort of sort of not paying enough, we kind of ignored them. And I thought it was a very interesting idea, idea interesting challenge to the industry, uh, which might, you know, could 
result in such tangible change. So I wondered what you thought about that idea of whether your, your industry, our industry, check prices risk correctly in that in those fields. Yeah, it is a it is a really really interesting question because if we get this one in a hundred or one in two hundred year event, then it, in the interim period it becomes very very difficult to get people to appreciate the risk you know if you've never experienced it and your parents have never experienced it then paying for a risk that seems outlandish or it's never going to happen um, it's not in, in the human nature to do that so um, we're not very good at a society in terms of pricing these sorts of risks and the so the, the way that we tend to deal with them is by excluding them and saying as we have done with with this situation, that if it hits, then a government response is required in order to bail us all out because none of us has the resources to do it on our own. So um, I think that's the sort of default solution for uh, a risk like this. You know, from uh, and but it's mainly a risk to the economy. It's less of a risk, you know, from a a pure business perspective, from a life and pensions and. Um, uh, uh, insurance company business perspective, it's not a one of the worst risks that we could have uh, have identified or we could have um, experienced. And um, however, you can see the impact it's had on wider society and therefore on the markets. And I suppose we're all just now trying to adjust to that and take account of the uh, the fiscal and monetary response that is coming from um, from the authorities as a result. Yes, and I think, and you've already mentioned the climate change, so I think certainly people would start, certainly people have made that connection uh, between, oddly, between the pandemic and climate change, which uh, in, in, the, in terms of, well, okay, you know, that is, that perhaps we need to think again, as, as you said, about whether that is being priced in, in terms of it could have similar effects of disruption, you know, effect, you know hit, hitting the economy joblessness when, you know, whether it's a, a flood or famine or anything, could strike strikes like that. Yeah, I think that's right. I think they're they're actually, as you say, they're quite different. Um, however, they are linked, and I think quite naturally in people's minds, and possibly because actually we were all thinking about the environment because you know before COVID started, if you cast your mind back, uh, we had those Australian fires, we had uh, flooding across the UK. I mean, there were lots of environmental catastrophes that were on people's minds before this hit. Um, and although they are quite different in the way that, that uh, they operate, and, and climate change is obviously a much more sort of gradual but uh, equally disastrous uh, potential outcome, um, I think that's, that's what I'm getting at, that I think actually in a funny way COVID will have refocused people's minds on what they consider to be important. And let's face it, there's no point in um, saving for 40 years to retire into a world where human beings are facing an existential crisis. So, you know, it does make sense for pensions customers to be thinking, actually, how am I investing here in a way that, that maximizes my well-being in retirement, not just my wealth, but actually the environment in which I'm retiring into? Uh, I wanted to ask, uh, just, to, just very quickly about regulation, um, just, just sort of, a, sort of an open question, but how how's the FCA been helping this situation? As you know, uh, I think it's one of my colleagues put it. Has it been a constructive partner uh, in managing the, in managing the fallout? Look, the FCA and all regulators have a tough um, gig when it comes to a, a crisis like this. Uh, however, they they very often tend to rise to the occasion in a way that's that's unseen 
by people outside the industry. And I would say that that's um, what we're seeing here again. So there's a huge amount of work going on behind the scenes um, at a, on a bilateral basis between ourselves and the regulator, but also between the regulator and the industry as a collective. Uh, so they have been, and I mean, actually some of it is publicly um, visible. So you'll have seen some of the policy responses, some really sensible stuff coming out of the FCA, like the postponement of the Investment Pathways new regulations mm -hmm. into February, um, genuinely helpful in terms of taking the stress of the uh, system. But on a day-to-day -day basis, um, we are literally speaking to them every day to keep them up to date on what's happening with markets, how we're dealing with uh, the crisis from an operational resilience perspective, how customers are changing, you know, what, what, uh, what we're hearing from customers and how they're utilizing their assets. Um, so uh, yeah, the, uh, the FCA and the PRA, from my perspective, um, have been very active and very constructive. Okay, excellent. Um, just a slight change, change in tack. Uh, so we recently wrote about the future of advice. We did a special edition on it. And a big part of that was talking about uh, the, what's called the 100 year life, uh, which is literally me, borrowed from the, the title of a book, uh, of the same name by uh, Professor Andrew Scott uh, and, uh, and Lin, Linda Gratton. I'm uh, just check it, checking on the bookshelf. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but we, yeah, we, we interviewed uh, Andrew uh, for, for the magazine. Um, it's very interesting. And I, and I wanted to ask you, you know, as a pensions provider, how you will cope uh, with the end of what he calls, or they call the, the end of the three-stage life, so education, work, retirement, uh, to what they call a multi-stage life, which includes several career breaks, sabbaticals, re-entering re education, retraining, entrepreneurship, the later life, highest earnings, earlier in life, and so on. Uh, and of course, you know, the, you know, the, yes, there's a career that's at uh, the end of your career, not being, not the, uh, you know, not the bit that earns you the most money. I was really interested in how you as a pension provider are thinking about that, or whether, whether you're thinking about that and what that might entail. Yeah, I mean, it's not a million miles from, from where we're going anyway. You know, the, the, it's maybe less extreme than um, the picture for most people than the picture that you're painting. But then um, our picture, the picture of how we've run our careers as in this generation is, would probably look uh, extreme to um, the previous generation, which were much more in that sort of three stages of life category. Um, so uh, things are changing already. And the answer to that, I suppose, is flexibility in the product design so that we're not locking people into contractual payments, et cetera, and that you can dip in and dip out of um, paying into uh, long-term savings. Um, but then it's also education and information because ultimately, even though if people go through this sort of um, seesaw of earnings throughout their career, they are going to have to invest for the long term. There will be a point at which they're not earning because they, 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 they just cannot. It's not that they're choosing not to, it's just that they're, they're not well enough to earn or they've chosen to retire. Um, and they'll need to build some capital, a fund to, uh, to pay for their, their lifestyle at that stage in their lives. So it's trying to um, explain to people how the best way to do this is and, uh, and, providing sufficient flexibility in our products to meet everybody's needs. Mm. Yes, I think you, you, you mentioned uh, flex, flexibility there and not lo locking people in. Um, 
Yes, I think, I think it's, a, it's a very interesting challenge. I think for advisors, particularly when I've been speaking to them about it, it's sort of a, it's, it's really interesting. It, it's the way the authors describe it is, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity that it would be a tragedy to waste. Um, and there's, there are, and, and I think another thing he said to me in the interview was that the, uh, you know, the job of, you know, of pensions and pension providers, you know, it's not, it's not to sort of just take our savings for the sake of it, but to deliver what it is that we need. And that has been a pension. And so it's been, the, the, the industry has become very good at setting up pensions and getting people to accumulate. Um, yeah. But if the, it, it will be interesting to see what the alternative might be in terms of being, you know, if you want to take it, you know, people, one of the points made in the book is that people will have to take years out and it sounds very decadent, but they say, well, if you're going to live, if you're going to live this time, when if, if, if 60 becomes sort of middle age or, or at least not the beginning of retirement, but the beginning of one of the final stages, um, you know, you can see that you definitely need to recharge in that time. You can see how he people's health is, is, is important already during this crisis. Um, and you'll not need to rechange and those things will need funding. You'll need to, fund a year off whether to travel or you will spend a similar amount of money uh getting retrained um so it kind of but those 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 conversations we were having a few years ago uh actually sort of about 10 years ago at the previous crisis about early access and things like that um put in a perhaps a I don't know, a bit more grown-up context possibly i don't know but uh it's it's uh it, it, it is it i think that sounds like there, there could be a need uh, for, for, for change or a need for providers to be a bit more on the front foot with these sorts of things. Yeah, and I suppose, I mean, traditionally, well, I think the trap that we've fallen into is talking about product too early and talking about pension and, and, and somehow pension um, being seen as different to investments when it's all really just investments for mm. the longer term. What, what the deal for customers is, well, how much do you want to lock up until you're 55 in return for getting either tax relief or an employer contribution. And it's no more simple, or sorry, it's no more difficult than that. You know, the, the, the reality is that most people will want a mixture of investments that they've locked up for the long term, uh, which we might call pensions, and investments that maybe are locked up for the medium term in their heads, but there are no physical locks on access mm. to the money, um, which could be through, uh, a, an ISA or through just a general investment account. So um, I, I think you're right. I think it might be that we just need to change the way that we describe these things to customers. Okay, uh, great. Just uh, just sort of uh, one of the final question, questions here, but um, just to talk about, uh, look, look back at Standard Life uh, just for, for a second, because I mean, you, you know, you, you started there uh, mm -hmm. in 1998. First, first thing was just to pick up on our last time we, we spoke um when you at city why you talked about the fact you'd, you'd uh, taken a partial db transfer yourself mm -hmm. uh have you did, have you taken the balance yet uh or not so i just want to no no, no and, and um like many people i think i've tried i've hedged my bets so uh yeah i've got um both a combination of db and dc okay because i know that well, i think we wrote a story and i've mentioned db transfers because i think we most mentioned uh we wrote a story yesterday that uh, Royal London had been one of the main recipients last year of DB monies. Um, I, I just interested in your view about sort of what the future of that that market might be, uh, whether it does have a future. Um, it, it, yeah, Royal London, because of our strength in the uh, with with IFAs, uh, was always going to be a beneficiary of that because I obviously, they, as you know, 
the Pensions Act meant that it was compulsory to take advice. So the, um, uh, but the, it feels like the, the most of that market has now moved, um, that was going to move. Uh, you know, the, the particular circumstances um, that existed over the last few years with uh, low long-term interest rates made transfer values exceptionally high. And uh, there's no doubt that um, although it, it was a, a very serious decision for people and the, some of the economics meant that uh, the access to, to the pension fund in DC was, was too much of a draw um, for, for our customers to resist, if you like, in moving from DB. Um, I think we're, we're through most of that. Uh, there will be, we'll now go back to, I think, more normal, long-term levels of DB transfers. Yeah. And uh, sorry, I said I was going to talk about Standard Life and I, I pivoted to DB uh, transfers yep. somewhat unfairly. Uh, but uh, but yeah, as I said, um, yes, you, 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 know, you I think you started your career at Standard Life. I did. Is that right? Yep. And then yep. I think I, um, I'm not sure you remember it because you've obviously been other places in between. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I interviewed you, uh, whether you're uh, Prudential as the Deputy UK CEO, I'm not sure if you remember that. <laughs> memorable well, memorable yeah. encounter uh, <laughs> in Scotland, but, yeah. uh, but it was what's for me, Barry. Uh, but, the, uh, but then you returned to Standard Life. And I suppose what I wanted to ask was what, your, what were your biggest lessons uh, from working at Standard Life and, and those other organisations uh, as, as a you know, leader, I suppose? Yeah, um, lots and lots of Things have happened to me uh, over the course of my career, um, most of them good, and I've worked for some great companies, including Standard Life and Prudential, as you mentioned. Um, the, uh, I suppose the, the, the main thing that I'm left with is the extent of change across the industry, uh, which when you step back and look at it, is, has been enormous. You know, the Standard Life I joined, for instance, is now probably mostly in Phoenix Group. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the bit of Standard Life, as was, is in Standard Life Aberdeen. Uh, Prudential has changed dramatically um, and is now M&G Pru, at least that UK bit that I worked in. So there has been a, a massive amount of change. And in some ways, the, um, the return to uh, the mutual sector for me uh, and joining Royal London is an opportunity to um, build on a very solid base that... Uh, hasn't seen that much change because that change brings with it turmoil to systems and operations and it's quite difficult for organizations to digest and overcome that level of change. So it's, uh, um, it is actually really, really good to be at a business that is, uh, you know, incredibly solid, constant, reliable and um, is focused on delivering for the long term. Interesting. And uh, finally, Barry, uh, what are you looking looking forward to most uh, once this crisis is over, or locked, lockdown over? What's the first thing you're going to do? Um, I'm looking forward to lots of things. I'm looking forward <laughs> actually to to seeing my people again. Uh, you know, we're doing as much as we possibly can over uh, VC, but um, uh, you know, human contact does make a massive difference. And I am looking forward to seeing my team and, and the wider uh, colleagues before. One of the last things we did actually, um, before the lockdown, I think it was the day before we all moved to working from home, um, was uh, a wine tasting evening in the office in London, uh, which was really, really good fun. And, uh, and that's the sort of thing that I'm looking forward to getting back to. 
That sounds great. I'll be looking forward to that as well, Barry, to be honest. So uh, that's fantastic. Uh, well, look, that's, that's all, uh, all, all the questions I had. Um, so, uh, Barry, th thank you very much. Thanks, Will. Cheers. Excellent. Cheers. Thank you.